vessel for this message because it's such an it's a word that we we don't use very much anymore but it's got deep biblical roots and literally God uses it and as, as an analogy of who we are as human beings in his divine plan we are all vessels uh, different shapes and sizes and purposes and all of that sort of thing, but we're vessels. And what I mean by that, I think what the, the biblical meaning of it is, is some kind of an implement. It's like a, a, the, the word actually in the text we're going to be reading in a moment has been changed to jar, but it's far broader than that. It could be a bucket, any kind of a tool. Typically, it's some kind of a container in which you put something for a useful purpose. And And so that's where we're going this morning. We're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 18, where the Bible uses um, a vessel as an important illustration of how God works through human beings. So let's get into the story. I've just chosen six verses uh, to highlight, and we're going to use this as our jumping off point into the message this morning. So let's begin at verse one. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop and I will speak to you there. Let me just pause for a second. Take note of the fact that sometimes there's a message before the message. And sometimes there's a required response in order to get to the thing that God wants to say to us at a given time. And I think God kind of intentionally sets that up for two reasons. One, because he might want us in a specific space. Whether that be geographic or whether it be some place of the heart or the mind. But he... He wants to use something in our surroundings as a part of that lesson, that message that he wants to deliver. So that's what's going on here. So um, fortunately for us, Jeremiah did what God told him. I did as he told me and found the potter working at at his wheel. But the jar or the vessel he was making did not turn out as he had hoped So he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Then the Lord gave me this message. O Israel, so speaking through the prophet to a nation, can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I pray that your spirit would so pervade this place that there would be clarity about the message that you want to give to us. Maybe this is our potter's house here this morning. Speak to us, I pray. Let us hear your word, and then let us be, have a heart to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm, I'm a process guy. I'm kind of known as that on the staff. I'm, God wired me that way. I don't know how that goes with being a pastor, but that's who I am. And so one of the things that I've been harping on a lot uh, this past year is systems. So I got the whole staff. We're working on creating ministry systems because the repeatable processes, stuff that we do um, every week, sometimes several times every week. So we want to refine and define and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm into process. Uh, that's my bias. That's the way I look at a lot of things. And even when I'm reading the scripture, a lot of times I'm thinking, of, in fact, 
I'm just kind of convinced that God's a process guy too. I, I mean, there's so many examples of that, right? So I'm, I see this passage through a process, and I want to talk to you about three stages This process that God used with Jeremiah and the nation of Israel that I think um, we we often experience in our own lives. And maybe you're at one of these stages right now. I hope I hope this will help you to see God at work in your life, even though it may not be the most pleasant moment that you're living. So let's look at stage one, first stage of of reshaping, which is what this story is about. The first stage of reshaping is disappointment. I know it's a bit of a downer to start off with, but that's the story we got to work with. There's disappointment. Verse four, first part of verse four. But the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped. You're talking about a nation here, the nation of Israel. And there was disappointment, clear disappointment. In fact, if you've, if you haven't read the book of Jeremiah lately, maybe this week you want to just kind of jump in there. Look at it through the eyes of, because literally the whole book is a book of disappointment. Well, I mean, on top of disappointment, on top, just pile on so many facets of disappointment in that story. I, I, Jeremiah had a tough calling. I mean, you, you can feel the breaking of his heart chapter after chapter as these disappointments mount up. And uh, so this is just a portion of all of that. And the reason why disappointment is because God had something special in mind for this nation, the nation that we to this day call Israel. I mean, a lot of people think of Israel and say, oh, you know, it's kind of like a favorite child. You know, why, why do they get all this favoritism and special privilege and all that kind of stuff? That's not what the story is. The story is God said, I'm going to make a nation and I'm going to reveal myself literally to the world through this nation because I want them to see what it looks like when I've got a bunch of people who love me and live for me and we have this dynamic beautiful relationship where I'm pouring into them and they're loving me back. I mean, it's like the perfect marriage, the perfect family. I'm just going to bless them in every way. And literally just to show that this is, this is me at work. It's going to require a miracle to even start this nation. I mean, there's nothing like this in history where literally there had to be a miracle for that nation to exist because it goes back to Abraham and Sarah. And even in the prime of their youth, they could not produce a child. So when Abraham's 75 years old, a bit past his prime, and Sarah as well, to the point when she heard the messenger from God tell Abraham that she was going to have a baby, she laughed out loud. That's funny. And God called her on that, you know, hey, why are you laughing? And, oh, no, no, I wasn't laughing. I'll tell you what. I'm going to add to the humor because one year from today, you're going to be holding a baby in your arms. And it turned out that way. Impossible. But that's how the nation began. And God said to Abraham, even before Isaac showed up, when this is all done, you're going to have so many descendants, nobody will ever be able to count them all. It'll be like the sand on the beach. It's still true today. And not only was God attempting to reveal himself to the people of their era, 
of, of the centuries of their history, which a good portion of our Bible takes up, it's still, it's still lessons for us today. We, we read this Bible and we see how God interacts with real people in real history time and time again and how he wants to pour his blessing in their life. He said, hey, you know, for our honeymoon package, I'm giving you a whole land. I'm going to give you a country flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be unbelievable. You're going to love this place. And that's how their, their relationship began. It was beautiful. But by the time you get to Jeremiah's point in history, everything had gone sour. They had substituted the real God with gods of their own making. I mean, they literally had crafted out of wood and clay and, and, and molten metal. They had made little gods with little ears and little eyes and little noses and little mouths. They couldn't speak and couldn't hear, had no heart, and yet they made this up in their own thinking that these gods were the ones that were bringing either blessing or curse on their life, and he's going, I'm done with this. I I am so disappointed in what's going on right now because that was never the intent of me creating you as a people that would demonstrate how God loves and blesses those who know and love him. Heartbreak, disappointment, beyond belief. All right, so let's take a look at some modern-day vessels. One of my favorite. There's so many memories. I mean, when we bring this up, my mouth salivates. Because I remember, first of all, Joan's mother, who's an amazing cook, cooking some cooking meals for family holidays. I mean, I'm talking, first of all, lasagna. And you have not had lasagna till you've had Mom Fava's lasagna. It's amazing. Fortunately, Joan learned the craft. And if you ever get invited to our house for lasagna, you, do, you cancel anything else and sign your calendar because you don't want to miss it. Roast turkey, Thanksgiving time. I mean, she got, she's got a killer chicken and rice dish right out of this pot. Memories, family time, special occasions. This is a vessel. All right, this is a little different. This is a vessel. Uh, in our younger years, uh, uh, there wasn't a ton of money. We had a ton of kids. <laughs> Joan did a lot of canning, uh, vegetables and fruits and stuff like that. But before that, my mother, I mean, I, I grew up in a five-acre uh, farm in New York, and we had at least one acre of it was garden every year. And I spent way more hours in my early life pulling weeds and cultivating and picking green beans and radishes and digging up potatoes. Um, a lot of stuff got canned, and we would go off to uh, a lot of fruit farms in the area, and we'd pick cherries and peaches and pears and things like that. Mom would, cu- would literally can hundreds of jars of fruits. And the, my very favorite, more than once as a teenager, I would go to the basement and grab one of these filled with peaches and a sweet syrup, and that and six pieces of toast were my breakfast. And it was a, that was a good day for me. It's a vessel. All right, so then we've got, I mean, so there's different kinds of vessels, right? So you got something like this. And this I stole out of the entry to our house uh, just for today. This little guy, pretty decorative. All he does is sit there underneath a little table and collect dust and look pretty. 
no utility to it whatsoever. It's purely aesthetic, uh, but it's nice to have around, and, and uh, he's been there for a while. But, I mean, if, if somebody broke or stole this thing tomorrow, we might miss it, but it wouldn't really cause a lot of grief, I promise you. And then in contrast to that vessel, you've got something like this that gets used every single day. It sits on the lanai of our house, and Joan fills it up several times and waters the plants. She's into plants, and she keeps them all looking healthy. And it's amazing, cheap little plastic bucket that I am, by the way, disappointed in because it's got a crack right there. So when she's away and I end up doing the watering, I try to put some all the water shoots out to the side. But we, we still get a good bit of use out of it. The whole point is this. There's different kinds of vessels that all have special purposes, that all that help to make up the life that we live. Some of it's just chores, everyday stuff. Some of it is the most delightful part of the delightful memories that we carry with us for a lifetime. And in God's house, which is all of the people on the planet that are part of his family, he's saying, I got all these vessels. And they're all part of a much bigger, there's no single vessel that all by itself is the star. Yeah, you need them all. And they, some are Some are pretty plain and ordinary, and some are a little more more spectacular um, in their usefulness, but they all have a value, and they're all part of a plan. And God is saying, that's that's what you're a container that holds my presence, and out of the Spirit of God that lives in you flows this this flow of activity that makes up everything that makes life beautiful and grand and sets us up for an eternity of glory with him. It's, It's about the vessels that are there. And I think maybe God's biggest disappointment is our resistance to being the vessel that he created us to be. Just the resistance to that. I don't like being who I am. I don't like being where I am. I I, this is not what I would choose. I want to be—I want to be a little grander in the scheme of things, and or we imagine that somebody else's role is so much more preferable than the one that we have. I mean, think back. There's so many stories in the Bible that help to illustrate that. I'm thinking of Moses, for example, Book of Exodus. And uh, God calls him, chapter 3, Moses, burning bush. Remember that? Moses, I want you to go to Egypt and set my people free. And you have a whole chapter, about a chapter and a half, of Moses arguing with God about this. Why, why me? Why did you call me? In fact, he literally says, I'm not capable of leading. Which is so funny because when you read even the secular leadership studies uh, of today, frequently refer to Moses as one of the greatest leaders of all time. And you've got this guy standing there, talk a real-life conversation with God saying, I am not capable of leading. It's, re- it's a resistance, and I, I don't know how that gets so inbred into us, but it seems like so often when, when God wants to use us in the, in the ways that he best could use us and designed us to be that it's like that just doesn't work for me that cannot be right and God I can't do that and God's saying all I want you to do is trust me because if you will trust me then I'll take care of the rest of the details but we got to deal with this resistance 
to my call on your life. Even Jeremiah himself, chapter one, he tells his own story of resistance to God's call in his life. And God is saying to him, hey man, when you were just a little thing in your mother's womb, I knew you as a person. And I built into your DNA everything that I needed in order to use you for the purpose I've called you. And Jeremiah's going, oh no, <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just kid and there's no way that I can do this, which, and if I had Jeremiah's calling, I'm sure I would have responded. To that. I think of all the people in the Bible, the Bible, Jeremiah's assignment was the most difficult. I would not have wanted to be called to do what God called him to do. And I understand him saying, I don't think I'm up for this. But when you read through there and see how God used that and how still today God is using that man's story to touch our lives, it's utterly amazing beyond anything that he could have imagined or us. And I wonder how many of us have that kind of thing going on somewhere inside of us where God has created us for some purpose. And uh, while we're dreaming how grand life could be if we could make it what we wanted it to be, we're missing how grand it can be if we surrender to what God is calling us to be. A lot of times it just doesn't seem like a fit for us. Think of Jonah. I love the story of Jonah. You look at uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. I love the wording of this. It says, God talked to Jonah, go to Nineveh, preach. It says, so Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord, which is so funny because you can run away from your calling, but you're not going to get away from the Lord. But his hope, I mean, he didn't argue with God like Moses and Jeremiah. He just said, I'm out. He just, it was all action on his part. <laughs> Gone. He got in a boat, and his intention was to sail as far away from Nineveh as it was as possible to get and still be in civilization somewhere. But God stopped him in his tracks, and he began a process of reshaping. There was a big fish involved in this. But in everybody's case, there's a reshaping of the heart that began to break down the resistance to being the vessel that God had made them and called them to be in their lifetime. One more example from the New Testament, Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. You read his story in Acts chapter 9, and here it is. He's, he's busy with all this religious activity, and there's this bright light that knocks him flat on his back, on the ground, and he hears a voice talking to him, calling his name, and he says, who are you? And the voice says, I'm Jesus, and by the way, why are you persecuting me? Oh, what do you mean by that? Saul, you're doing everything you can to destroy Everything I'm trying to build. What's up with that? We need a change here. Something's going to happen because I had a calling on your life that's going to touch the nations. But until something changes, a reshaping happens in your heart, we just can't get there. Or dramatic reshaping. Paul ended up writing two-thirds of our New Testament. And here's a few verses from the book of Romans that he penned. And by the way, here once again you see the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. Romans 9, 20 and 21. I love the message translation of this. Who in the world do you think you are to second-guess God? Nobody was better fitted to say those words than Paul. 
He's talking to himself, and he's just saying, this, by the way, this is true of all of us. Who in the world do you think you are to second-guess God? Do you, for one moment, suppose any of us knows enough to call God into question? Look at this. Clay doesn't talk back to the fingers that mold it, saying, why did you shape me like this? That's the question, isn't it? God, why did you make me like I am? Isn't it obvious that a potter has a perfect right to shape one lump of clay into a vase for holding flowers and another into a pot for cooking beans? I mean, we all tend to want to be on display, to be admired. But that may not be the calling in the moment that God has for each one of us. Sometimes it's cooking the beans or other things that he needs to use us for. So that resistance that we have, it's the question, the question is so perfectly framed in verse 20. Why, God, why did you make me like I am? I'm pretty sure that question gets asked in frustration more than any other frame of mind. Why do I look like I look? Why do I think like I think? Why do I feel like I feel? Why do I do what I do? Why am I strong here and weak there? What's, what's going on with me? And how can I escape this person that you shaped me to be to reshape myself into something that I would choose to be? Rather than, God, what are you doing in me? But back to the whole point of this, there's the element that starts it all off is disappointment. God, God had a plan and a purpose, and our plan and our purpose is much bigger than the years that we live on this planet. It's part of a universal grand plan that God has for all of the ages. And we are simply, we're not, we're not there to make our own story. He put us here to be a part of his story. And we get to choose whether we're going to turn out like he had hoped or become something that we had hoped that might be far different. Let's go to stage two. Second stage of reshaping is correction. So you got the disappointment, then you move to correction back to Jeremiah 18.4. But as the jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped, so he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. Started over. You know, sometimes there's no just fixing what's going on. There's a starting over point for some of us that's a part of this reshaping. I I remember when I uh, first started into my doctoral program, I was so excited, man. I'd gotten through the screening and accepted into a, a great program at a good school, and I was so pumped for that. And then I submitted my first project. And I thought I did a good job. I mean, I worked hard at it. I, I tried to follow all the, the guidance that had been given. When I, got, when I got my grade back, it was a 30%. I, that'll do something to you. I got phone number of uh, my professor that graded the paper. I called him. Dr. Winston, you got to talk to me, man. Am I, am I not cut out for this? Do I need to drop out of this program? He said, Steve, listen, first of all, I did you a favor. Oh, thank you. <laughs> he said, I think it's to your advantage to fail early so that you can succeed later. 
I've, you ever get that call from God? <laughs> I'm going to help you fail. He said, you need to learn how to learn. Okay. He said, here's what I want. I want you to rewrite that paper. He said, if you just do a redo and you send it back to me, I promise you I'll fail you. But if you will delete that entire project and you will start from scratch and do it all over again, I promise you no matter what you send me, I'll give you a passing grade. Please trust me, that was a lot of work. I didn't want to do it. But I decided if there's any chance of me taking the next step forward, I've, I've got to do that. So I did the work and I sent it in and I fortunately got a grade back of 90%, which I don't know if that had anything to do with the quality of my paper or the softness of his heart. But at least he encouraged me to keep on going. And he set me up for a future success because he humbled me early in the program so that I could enjoy walking across that graduation line later on. You know, there are moments when God just said, listen, we're going to start over here. And I suspect there may be one or two or maybe a handful of people in this room right now, and you're wondering, what in the world's going on in my, in my life right now? What is this all about? And, and maybe it is that starting over thing where God's saying, you know, we're gonna, let's, let's put this, this clay, this, this project back into a fresh ball of clay and make something new that's different from what it was last time. It's about starting over. It's about correction in a lot of ways, painful correction that produces a better result. Let's go to Hebrews where we see God uh, giving this lesson to us. I love the way this starts out. Have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? And when I read this, I smile every time. It's like, how can this be encouraging? I guess it is. He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one who accepts, who he, each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, endure is a great word there, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who's never disciplined by his father? And then verse 11, no discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. Yeah. So apparently, God sees possibilities in us we don't see in ourselves. Apparently, he sees that we're capable of more than we think we're capable of. And while we're busy dreaming all these fantastic dreams of how wonderful we can make our own lives if we only pursue all these wonderful goals, God is saying, nah, 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 nah. That might look appealing on the surface, but I got something for you that might be much more humble and difficult. It'll be much more rewarding. And so he talks about it as if uh, we're a vine. Look at John. There are a couple of great metaphors here in the New Testament. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And then he goes and he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so that they will produce even more. And so he's seeing, they're seeing some potential there. 
And he's saying, but there's some stuff that's getting in the way here. We got to deal with this because it can be better and it will be better. And then there's another metaphor of gold. He talks to us about in 1 Peter chapter 1. These trials will show that your faith is genuine, is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. So he's saying, I see gold here, but I see junk mixed in with the gold. Though your faith, he says, is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it'll bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. And so he's saying, there's going to be an amazing point where all of this comes to some climax and you're going to be a part of the glory and the honor and the praise along with Jesus Christ if you allow him to purify you through correction to become what he sees that you can be. Tough times to get here, but the rewards are great. Correction is always painful, but God promises that if we will surrender to what he wants to do in our hearts and our lives, he will make it more than worthwhile. Let's move on. So third stage, we got the disappointment, and then we experience correction. Third stage of reshaping is surrender. Verse 6 of Jeremiah 18, God says, this is the message, Can I not do to you as this potter has done to his clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. So the lumps, the hardness, the resistance to being shaped have been removed from the lump of clay, and now there's this point of surrender that we've reached where he can actually begin to make us into the beautiful thing that he had hoped our lives would turn out to be. Pretty amazing. You know, you look at, you look at Jesus, who to us in every aspect of life is an example, and I'm thinking right now about Gethsemane, the night of his betrayal, and just before going to the cross the next, the next day. He's in the garden, and he's praying, and he's saying, Father, I don't know if I can do this. If there's any way that this thing that's planned for tomorrow can pass, that's what I'm going to ask you to do. However, I'm not going to put my will ahead of yours. And if this is something that you want and you're asking me to do, then my answer is yes, no matter what that is. That's the point he wants us to reach, where it's a yes to God no matter how difficult, how, how painful, how challenging it might be because Hebrew tells us he was able to look past the cross and to see the glory that awaited him once he fulfilled the purpose, the complete purpose that God has for his life. And that's what he's calling us to do and to be. The dream he wants to put in our heart is the dream to be the kind of vessel that he can use for whatever occasion he may choose, regardless of how it may feel to us in the moment. It's about being that vessel for him that he's worked to shape into something that's useful to him. I was a teenager when I, I experienced something on this level. And uh, I mean, I, I'm so appreciative of Anthony and Brooke and what they're doing with our teenagers and the whole Rocktober thing and, uh, and, and, and what they do throughout the year. It means something. Let me just tell you a little of my own story. I was 16, and uh, during those those years when uh, peer pressure, 
influence affected me as much as anybody, and most, if not all, my friends were heading in directions like Jonah, the opposite way that God would have wanted them to go. I just wanted to, I just wanted to be part. Of, I wanted to be accepted and, and join in. So I was struggling with all that stuff. And uh, there was this uh, youth convention in Rochester, New York. I, I just remember this clearly. Um, 3,000 teenagers from all across the state of New York. We gathered there in Eastman Kodak um, Hall of Music. Grand place. I mean, two, three balconies. Huge chandelier almost the size of this room. Unbelievable. At least that's the way I remember. I'd love to go back someday and see if I'm remembering the way it really was. But uh, it, uh, here's who I was in that day. I was uh, a bit on the shy side. And most of the reason for that was because I had this this physical thing my thorn in the flesh where if anybody drew attention to me in a group of people, I would blush terribly. I mean, my face would turn, would get so hot, scorching hot, I would turn 10 shades of red till I reached crimson. And, and that was an additional embarrassment. I wanted, to, I wanted to run and hide. And so I would avoid anything that would create people to look at me. I just, I didn't want that to happen. So here I am sitting with these kids about three quarters of the way back on the main floor. There's a powerful message that's preached. And by the way, don't play down all of the crazy stuff that, that we're doing with youth ministry, all, all the nutty, because God works through that. And you're looking at a guy that's up here today as a result of what happened 50 years ago in my life. The altar call was given, and that most unlikely person in the place, I was one of, if not the first person on my feet, walked all the way down the aisle. Excuse me. This is so real to me. It was my potter's house. I went up on that stage, because that's what they ask us to do. I hit my knees, and for the next 45 minutes... One of the most emotional, spiritually powerful experiences of my life. God started a reshaping of my heart. And you can look at my life today, my family, my kids, what I'm doing in ministry. And if you, if you were able to follow the trail, it would take you back to Eastman Kodak Hall of Music in Rochester, New York. There's my potter's house. And if I want anything at all for you and anybody whose life I might touch in ministry, I want you to have your moment of surrender. I know that's a not a popular word. And you don't read it in the success books of today. I think it's the most important word in our language. Because it's when we reach that point of surrender and we say to God, I will be like a lump of clay in your hands. And literally my prayer was, I remember as clearly today as I did then, I said to God, I'm going to give you my future. The reason why it's so emotional for me is because deep in the core of me, I knew the prayer I was praying in that moment was going to last a lifetime. It wasn't just the emotion of the moment. It was far, far deeper than that for me. And I said, I will give you my life, no matter what that might mean. I will do what you call me to do, regardless of what anybody else does. And, and given the peer pressure I was experiencing, that was huge for me. To be willing to go against the grain if need be. 
I will serve you no matter what that might cost me. And I meant it. I wish I could say that I've walked that out perfectly over the last five decades. I have not. I'm flawed. I've screwed that up uh, many, many times. But something in my heart has never changed. And there have been crossroads down through my life experience where, where I've had to reaffirm that and say, I, I meant it then. I still mean it today. And I can stand up here with full confidence and say to you this morning, I still mean that prayer. I don't know what all it's going to mean, but what I am saying is, if I've got a calling of any kind, it's not necessary to be on the, on the stage and, and, and preach. It's just to be a vessel. Take a look at this verse in Timothy, because I think this is how I understand what God has called me to, and perhaps all of us. In a well-furnished kitchen, there are not only crystal goblets and silver platters, but waste cans and compost buckets. Some containers are used to serve fine meals, others to take out the garbage. Become the kind of container God can use to present any and every kind of gift to his guests for their blessing. One more verse and I'm going to wrap up with this. From 2 Chronicles 16, 9, the eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. His eyes are just always looking around and he needs vessels, right, to accomplish his purposes. He's just looking for the person that has the heart that he can bless and turn that into something far beyond what we could make for ourselves. Would you bow your heads with me? As we close, I'm just wondering if this morning you're here and and you're feeling, you know, this is my moment of surrender. Maybe this is your potter's house. It happens. It's it's different for all of us because we're all wired differently. But maybe even before you came here today, God was working in your heart and, and this is a moment for you where you're just saying, you know, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want him as my savior. I want him to deal with my past and be done with that. And I want to I give him my future, whatever that might mean in his purpose for me. But I want to receive Christ into my life today. I'd love to pray with you as we close and, be, and before we leave today. Just if, you, if that's you, between you, me, and God, slip up your hand and say, I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus Christ today. Is there anybody here? Thank you. I see your hand. Is there anybody else who want to join in this? This could be that moment that uh, changes everything about your future. Say, I'm going to give up on my ways and I'm going to embrace God's plan for me. Thank you. Anybody else? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for working with people like Jeremiah to help us see how you so wonderfully work in our lives. And I pray for those, Lord, this morning that are crossing that threshold into a doorway of a future that's entirely yours in their life. And I, Lord, we just embrace you, Jesus, as Savior. You, we believe that you came here through a virgin, a miraculous birth, that you lived a sinless life, that you died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, that you were resurrected back to life by the power of God, alive today at the right hand of God, and that you are working in our lives to make us a part 
of your wonderful plan. Lord, we surrender to you. We give our future to you for your honor and your glory. For Jesus' sake.